Thank you for joining us for this week's sermon podcast from the First United Methodist Church of Parable. Holy God, we pray today with gratitude in our hearts. We give thanks that you have seen fit to call us forth to this place alongside one another as we share in fellowship and prayer, as we offer our voices and spirits and worship, as we make our gifts, our tithes, our offerings, as we gather around the sacred words of Scripture. God, we pray that all of these elements of worship would help to shape and reshape our souls according to your will, your grace, and your love. God, may you speak through this moment now. May you speak through my words, perhaps in spite of my words, for the sake of these, your people, gathered here. These things in Christ's name we pray. Amen. In the opening uh, introduction, the beginning of the book, Psychology of Money, uh, the author, Morgan Housel, uh, tells the story of the gentleman whose newspaper clipping you can see there in the background. Uh, His name is Ronald James Reed. Some of you may remember this story. It made news waves about uh, 10 years ago. Uh, But Ronald James Reed is the story of an unlikely philanthropist and donor. I want to tell you a little bit about his life, make sure I get the details right. He was born in 1921 in Dummerston, Vermont, in a small home. Uh, He is of the generation where he actually did walk in the snow to school four miles one way. The school was in the nearby community, Brattleboro. He graduated high school. He served in World War II and returned home to live there in that community of Brattleboro, Vermont. Uh, Reed worked for many years as a service station attendant and mechanic, uh, later leaving that work and became a custodian at the local J.C. Penney for 17 years. Uh, He married a lady named Barbara. Uh, Later, she already had children, so he became their stepfather. He helped care for them and get them through college. Uh, They lived in a small, simple home there in Brattleboro. Uh, He did things like chop wood, collect stamps, collect coins. Uh, He enjoyed having coffee at the local hospital cafeteria. He was a regular at his community library, often leaving with a stack of books, bringing those back, taking another stack home, reading as much as he could. Eventually, of course, his health deteriorated. He lived a long life up until he was 92. He ended up in the hospital, the local community hospital where he died. And this is where his story became interesting. Uh, After his death, it was discovered that he was worth around $8 million, $8 million. Uh, He had invested throughout his life in major companies like CVS, Johnson & Johnson, Procter & Gamble, General Electric, Dow Chemical. He'd always monitored his investments closely. Often they produced dividends, which he would use to buy more stocks. They said in his safe deposit box was a stack of stock certificates about five inches tall uh, that he had had stored there and locked away. So this story became a big deal because $8 million, he left a few million to his stepchildren and their families. He left $4.8 million to that local hospital that had cared for him, and he left $1.2 million to the local library that he often visited. These were by far the largest gifts that these local institutions had ever received, and they were made by the, the town mechanic and janitor. None of his friends or really his family uh, knew what he was worth or how much he had saved or his ability to, to spread generosity in this way. And so this news was, was really a big deal uh, when it came out, the, the, the theme of the millionaire next door, right? Uh, but it speaks to, of course, um, the, the possibility uh, that's, that's before us in terms of our own financial discipline, 
the commitments that we make across many, many years, not necessarily our income, but the way in which we save and monitor our money, and the way in which we can bless others, right? That generosity is an opportunity that lies before all of us, right? Maybe in our life as we know it, it may be after our life as we know it, but all of us have this capacity uh, with the right sort of uh, guidelines and expectations. And so you can read more about Mr. Reed. It's a fascinating story, and Mr. Housel in his book does a little bit more of a dive uh, into his life and how it came to take this shape. The theme of Mr. Housel's book, Morgan Housel, The Psychology of Money, he says that, that money affects all of us and confuses most of us, which I think is a pretty good line. It affects all of us and confuses most of us. And the thing he tries to do in that book is he tries to narrate the way in which our personal experiences shape our expectations around money. Right? And those personal experiences include how we were raised and whether money was tied or, or came easy for our family, the way in which we saw our, our parents use money or spend money or worry about money. Uh, all of those things that we see as young people, children, teenagers, that comes to shape our expectations for our life as well. And then Mr. Housel does kind of a bigger picture. It's not just what we experience in our household, but it has a whole lot to do with the time in which we grow up, Right? So different generations have a very different economic outlook, right? If you grow up in a time of, of hardship, right, certainly as far back as the Depression, but even other seasons where the economy has been tight and, and wages have been limited, then you tend to have a more conservative posture, right? You seem to have a little less trust in the future of the economy. Others of us grew up, including some people my age, we grew up in the dot-com era where everything sort of boomed and the economy grew exponentially and we saw a lot of economic growth. And so people tend to have a more positive outlook, right, that the economy is going to grow and that money is going to come, come easily and come quickly in our future. All that is to say is I sort of agree with, with Housel's theory there, right? We all bring different expectations around money and our experience of money when we think about our own financial future, right? Even in this room, this is kind of one of the hard things about preaching on a, a theme like this. Even in this room, we have so many different experiences from the way you were raised, the jobs your parents had, the jobs you have, the financial experiences you've had. We're all bringing a whole lot of different things to the room this morning. And so we want to be careful when we talk about money, talk about our spiritual disciplines related to money and the future of our money. We're beginning a stewardship series, as you heard Sarah tell the children, um, just to give you a little history, that was kind of the pattern here. Pandemic, things got disrupted. And then last year, we did a series specifically on our debt campaign. Um, so we haven't done a January stewardship series in a couple of years. And so I'm excited to return to that. I think it's a good time to do that here at the beginning of the year as we recommit ourselves to certain disciplines and as we make plans for the year ahead of us to be thinking about our finances and our spiritual disciplines uh, related to them. So we're going to use Hamilton's book. You are familiar with Adam Hamilton, senior pastor of Church of the Resurrection in Kansas City, the largest United Methodist Church. Uh, obviously, he gives these as sermons in his own church, and so he will put together a sermon series, uh, and then he fleshes it out a little more and makes the sermons into chapters, into a book. And so that's what we're reading. This was put together in 2009, and so it reflects the anxiety of the 2008 economic crisis, and you can hear a little bit of that in here. Uh, but it's such a well-rounded book, it's been updated and it's been reissued a few different times. And so I really encourage you to read it. Uh, I think Hamilton does a nice job of taking that, that, that thing that, that Housel's doing in his book, The Psychology of Money, How Our Brains Are Wired to Think About Money. Hamilton kind of moves it a little bit into the, the Christian sphere, right? How are our spirits 
wired to think about money? How is our heart and our soul wired to think about money? And so it's not a long book. There are four chapters. I know many of our Sunday school classes are going to read it. You can see the four chapters there correlate with the four weeks in the sermon. Uh, So we'll use some of the themes from the book in my preaching, though obviously I'll try to add some of my own reflections as well. But encourage you to pick up a book, read it yourself, read it with your Sunday school class, read it with your small group. And each week we'll talk a little bit more about the week that's coming next and how how all of that will, will come together Uh, here by the end uh, of February. All right, so let's talk a little bit about just the groundwork that Hamilton lays and and some of what, you know, we sense in our our world today. Uh, I liked that he used this quote from Alexis de Tocqueville. De Tocqueville was a a, a French philosopher and kind of a sociologist, a um, sort of a political leader, and he he did some analysis of uh, the growing country of the United States. This is way back in the 1800s, pre-Civil War. So this is a long time ago, but here's what he says. He says, Americans are extremely eager in their pursuit of immediate material pleasure. Now, this is in the 1800s, right? Extremely eager in the pursuit of immediate material pleasure, and they are always discontented with the position they occupy. They think about nothing but the ways of changing their lot, right? Wow, that's a pretty pretty enlightening critique and observation about Americans, and it came 200 years ago, right? It came 200 years ago. So here we have an outsider who's uh, analyzing our culture and our posture toward the world, and he says they're extremely eager in the pursuit of immediate material pleasure, and they are always discontented, discontented. Now for me, that's the word that kind of resonates, right, being discontented. And maybe uh, this isn't true for all of you. Some of you are in a different stage of life. But in my stage of life, right, I, I feel a lot of discontent or anxiety, right, about what's coming next. How do I spend our money? How do I save my money? How do we manage our money? How do we plan for our children and for their futures? How do we get the things we want? How do we enjoy our lives? How do other people handle their money? What do they know that I don't know, right? Uh, that stuff swims around in my head quite a bit, right? And I wish it were true, but it is, you know, and I look at our finances, and I look at our lay of life, and I wonder if we're doing it right, you know, and I worry about what's next, and are we rightly prepared. So when I read that phrase, discontented, that that resonates with me, uh, that sense of being discontent, and, and wanting, or thinking I want, or hoping for something more, or something different in the future. There's a few things in Hamilton's book, some of it's a little dated, but, but I appreciated the way he highlighted uh, things like, like layaway. Uh, some of y'all remember using layaway. I remember that when I was a kid. Uh, Mom, we would go to, to JCPenney in Batesville, which is no longer open, but we would get winter clothes or summer clothes, school clothes. Uh, we would try them on, get them organized, and then give them back, right? Uh, and we would go get them maybe four or five or six weeks later. I, as a child, I didn't know what was going on, right? Uh, but, of course, now I understand mom and dad were paying for those clothes, you know, a little bit at a time. Maybe didn't have the 100 or 200 or $300 they needed to buy them all at once. Hamilton highlights how, how we do the opposite now, Right? Uh, credit cards and credit uh, card uh, companies have made it where you don't have to wait to own things, right? Instead of paying up front, you just go ahead and get the things you want, all right? Uh, put it on the card and worry about it later. And there's all this research that shows we're more likely to spend more with a card, right? A card feels sort of invisible, right? We don't have to think too much about it, and so it's easy to swipe it. We're far more likely to spend more with a card than with cash, I did a little bit of research on this. The 2023 data for American households comes out to about five to six thousand dollars of credit card debt. 
for each American household. And on average, the credit card interest rate's around 22%. Uh, now, sometimes credit cards can be really helpful. I mean, if you have a crisis, if you've got to replace a transmission in a vehicle and you don't have the money for it, if you have a medical bill you weren't expecting, sometimes there's just no other choice, right? You've got to put it on a credit card until you can come up with the cash. But we also know that sometimes credit cards are abused, right? And I'm thinking, of course, about the holiday season we just came through, right, in my household. Uh, gifts and food and travel, right? There's some, some frivolous things maybe that are on our credit card that we could have cut back on. But it was easy just to swipe that card or punch in that number online. Another thing that, that Hamilton brings up that, that is a, a sad a truism is just the anxiety that finances create in our family. I mean, there's a lot of data out there about marriages and, and what leads to the end of a marriage, but one of the most common factors is financial hardship, right? Financial anxiety shared in a marriage becomes very hard on a marriage and sometimes leads to a couple divorcing. Now, while all, all those things are, are true, I think 2024 is even more complicated. We've, we've come through a really weird economic few years. I mean, the pandemic put everything on pause, but then there was all this federal money that came in. I mean, we were just getting money put into our accounts. Do you remember that? That was great, wasn't it, right? And there was loans for small businesses, all this cash, right? We couldn't go anywhere. We couldn't spend it. Everything was closed, but there was money around. Of course, things have started to balance out. Inflation has come up. Now wages are trying to come up. So we've been through a real economic kind of rocky season. Many of you who run businesses or manage businesses know those things better than I do. The point, of course, is that we feel a need in our world to have and to want more, right? To have and to want more, and the pressures that come with that often lead to us being in a, a financial position that's not healthy, and it's not sustainable. And so we need some, some spiritual tools for managing that. Whether you think it's good news or whether it's bad news, you should hear today that this is an ancient problem, Right? While we have some contemporary American data about credit cards and debt and things like that, the problems themselves go back across all of human history, right? Uh, Sarah read from Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is a weird book. It's kind of like Proverbs. It has little, little quotes and little qui uh, quips about wisdom of the world and, and just one of these little lines, right? The lover of money will never be satisfied, right? And this is coming from some 2,500 years ago, right? You can never have enough because when you want something that, that cannot be fulfilled, you always want more of it. There's never an end to it. Right? So the problem that we face today, it's an ancient problem. Uh, famously, the, the, the church has categorized sins in different ways, the cardinal sins or the deadly sins, pride, greed, wrath, envy, lust, gluttony, and sloth. Well, look at four of the seven, right? Greed, envy, lust, and gluttony. Right? Those are about having things, uh, wanting things you, you shouldn't have or wanting more of things than you should have or having too much of, of what you shouldn't have, right? So the spiritual problems that face us today, there may be more mechanics to it around the way our finances work, our financial systems, but, but the spiritual problem is quite old, right? It's an old problem. That somehow we are mis misrepresenting God's will for our lives when we want more than we should want, when we go after more than we should want, and that creates in us a sort of desire that cannot be fulfilled. The text I want to look at today is this one from 1 Timothy 6, 6-10. through 10. And I've highlighted just a few of the key phrases, and, and you've heard this one in, in other sermons or devotionals, but I'll just remind you some of what's going on here. 
the, the letters of Timothy, you know, we believe that Paul is writing to Timothy. Timothy was Paul's sort of assistant, sort of associate. Uh, Paul is uh, raising Timothy up to be a minister and to be a missionary and to continue the work of the church. And so I love those letters when you're reading First and Second Timothy, you're reading from a mentor, writing to a mentee about how to live a life, particularly a life of faith and a life of spiritual wisdom. And so again, we're, we're looking way back in history, but I want you to hear how contemporary uh, this teaching sounds, right? There's great gain in godliness combined with contentment. Great gain in godliness combined with contentment. Well, obviously, that is the opposite of what Alexis de Tocqueville said about Americans, right? Americans are discontent because they're always wanting more and more and more. Well, notice what Paul tells Timothy, right? There's great gain in godliness combined with contentment. In other words, Timothy, this is the goal. This is the spiritual goal. To be content in your spirit, in your heart, in your soul. To give thanks for what God has given you and to receive it and to enjoy it, but not to constantly feel the urge to have more and more. He goes on with this famous line you've heard many times. It comes from Paul, right? For we brought nothing into the world and we will take nothing out of it. Furthermore, if we have food and clothing, then we will learn to be content with these. Ooh, that's a little bit of a dose of humility, right? I was joking with people on the way in, like, this is the day, right, for that big jacket in the back of your closet. Today's the day, right? It sits back there all year. You look at it longingly. Will I ever get to wear it? Well, today's the day, right? I'll confess with you, I have so many jackets. I love jackets because I love the cold weather, and I like the opportunity to wear jackets. So I've got brown jackets and black jackets and hunting jackets and insulated jackets. I have so many jackets. In fact, I might wear two today just so I can enjoy them, you know. Imagine the standard that Paul says, right? If we just have enough clothes and enough to eat, then we could be content with this. And yet we've created for ourselves such a higher standard Right, of expectation of what we ought to have, what we think we need. He goes on, he says, those who want to be rich have fallen into temptation and they're often trapped. This is kind of the, 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 the descending narrative, right? Instead of being content, you tend to seek after things you don't want, you don't need. This leads to all sorts of desire and eventually ruin and destruction. And Paul says if that continues, you might end up walking away from the faith. So there's a lot of spiritual wisdom here, right? That, that part of being a healthy, mature person of faith is being content with what I have, giving thanks for what God has given me, and to be aware of that urge in me, that desire to want more, and to know that I've got to sort of get that under control with God's help and with God's grace. I've got to get that under control because if not, I'm just going to run myself into ruin, I'm just going to want more and more and more, and eventually those things become the things I'm worshiping, and I might as well even leave my faith because I'm so focused on more and more and more. This series, the goal is to think about our lives and the ways in which we've made them more complicated and how we might simplify them in light of our faith. Uh, Hamilton ends with this wonderful little hymn from the Shakers. You may remember the Shakers are a, a small Christian sect in New England. Um, you've probably heard people talk about Shaker furniture, Shaker-style furniture. This is where it comes from, right? The Shaker community there in New England at the beginning of the, the uh, American Revolution. Uh, they're kind of a unique Christian group. They have a, sort of a Pentecostal flavor. They also enjoyed dancing and celebrating. They had a lot of expectation about the return of Jesus um, but they had this wonderful little song that Hamilton shares. He says, it's a gift to be simple, it's a gift to be free. 
It's a gift to come down to where we ought to be, to find ourselves in the place that's just right, to be in the valley of love and delight. Oh, I really like that. It's a gift to be simple and to be free. Again, there's a lot of wisdom here, right? The more and more things we want, the more and more things we take on, the more complicated our life gets, sometimes the more trapped we feel. And as people of faith, we're trying to sort of move in the opposite direction, right? Let's make our lives simple and free so we can follow Jesus and celebrate what God's doing in the world. We can be nimble and quick to respond when there's a need or when there's a mission. To be simple is to be free. To be free is to follow Jesus with our whole heart and our whole life. I look forward to working out some more of these themes with you the next few weeks. Read the book as you're able as we move toward trying to be more simple in our faith and in our life in this coming year. Let us pray. Holy God, we give thanks for all that you have given us, particularly as a community of faith. You have blessed us richly. God, help us to be content, to recognize what you've done for us, the ways in which you've given to us, the ways in which you've blessed our lives. Help us to receive these gifts to enjoy them, and to live a life that reflects your love and grace. God, on this cold morning, on this morning where we remember and celebrate the work of the Whithouse, as we begin to reflect on our lives and our financial hardships and challenges and disciplines, God, we remember that the world is, is made up of many people in many different positions of need. We give thanks for the ways in which we've been blessed, and we hold in prayer those in need around us, We pray that you would use us, that you would move us and challenge us to serve those around our community with your love, with your grace, with your kindness, with your generosity. All of these things in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Hello. Thank you for joining us for this week's sermon podcast from the First United Methodist Church of Parable. You can find out more about First United Methodist Church by going to our website at www.fumcparacle.org. May God bless you this week.